King Solomon, arguably the wealthiest and smartest man who ever lived, exhausted his inexhaustible resources in a relentless pursuit of contentment. Sex, wealth, power, fame, intoxication, you name it, he did it. In his own words, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. And when it was all over, meaningless, he says. Everything is meaningless. Solomon got all he ever wanted and was still left wanting. What would happen if you got everything you ever wanted and it was still not enough? Do you recognize this face up here on the screen? Anybody recognize that face? Shoot your hand up if you recognize that face. Some of you do, some of you don't. That's Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury is the lead singer of Queen, who you just heard on that track there, that last song called Somebody to Love. We're going to be talking about that in a minute. And believe it or not, King Solomon and Freddie Mercury had a lot in common. Remember what we talked about last week, that Solomon exhausted his seemingly inexhaustible resources in a relentless pursuit of contentment, looking for joy, looking for fulfillment in things under the sun. Sex, money, power, fame, wealth, you name it, he did it, just as we heard in the video. Solomon pursued excess to the nth degree. And Freddie Mercury did the same, believe it or not. So let's just get to know Freddie a little bit. We're going to talk about some of the things that he did. We're going to compare and contrast these two to help us talk about Ecclesiastes this morning. In the 70s, as Queen got more and more popular, they began to release platinum records one after another, and they began to win Grammys and awards and accolades and rise in fame one after another. And then in 1985, people kind of thought Queen was washed up. People kind of thought they were over and that Freddie Mercury was old news. And then they played at a concert called Live Aid. Anybody ever heard of Live Aid before? 100,000 people at Wembley Stadium in London and 90,000 in Philadelphia live via simulcast and Freddie Mercury and Queen came out on stage and absolutely stole the show. The best of the best bands at the time all played at Live Aid and Queen killed it. They beat everybody when it came to uh, showmanship and uh, the musical performance that they put on. So much so that an MTV VJ actually said this of that performance. If you have to go back and watch one performance, it has to be Queen. That was not just a career-defining moment. Rock and roll might have peaked right there. Can you believe that? Freddie Mercury on stage at Live Aid is the summit of rock and roll. That was just the most stunning, breathtaking, flawless, powerful, jubilant performance. It was everything you wanted in rock and roll. There's an article that said that Freddie Mercury exhibited a fascinating kind of power over 100,000 people in Wembley Stadium during that performance. There's the fame and there's the power. Freddie Mercury had money, too. He had all the, all the money he ever wanted. So much money, in fact, that on his 41st birthday, he threw himself a party in Ibiza. There were over 700 people there. 
After the fact, the bill included 232 broken glasses. How do you break 232 glasses at a party? I don't know. He, ma- he had himself a-, a cake made in the shape of Sagrada Familia, that huge church in Barcelona, just to show off his excess. Reporters, after the fact, said that it was the most incredible example of excess the Mediterranean island had ever seen. Freddie Mercury finished his life in a 28-room mansion in Kensington, UK. It's a home that would be worth over $30 million today. And all that money, all that fame, all that power, all that excess, and Freddie Mercury, just like Solomon, never found contentment. And that's not just a guess. I'm not just guessing that he never found contentment. Look what Freddie said. It's up here on the screen. He said, fame and success have brought me everything except a loving, ongoing relationship. I seem to eat people up and destroy them no matter how hard I try to make things work. Listen, listen how sad this is. Sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat screaming with fear because I'm so alone. That's why I go out looking for someone who will love me, even if it's just a one-night stand. Freddie Mercury experienced a lot of those, by the way. Died of AIDS-related complications in 1991. I fall in love far too quickly, and I end up getting hurt and scarred. It seems I just can't win. Freddie Mercury and King Solomon had so much in common, both promiscuous. Remember, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Both wealthy, both both powerful, both superstars, and yet both of them were so desperately alone. And for both men, that isolation and loneliness began to breed within them a root of cynicism towards the world and even towards God. Solomon would say it this way in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. You see the cynicism here? You see the loneliness here? On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Here's what we just learned about King Solomon. Number one, you don't want King Solomon as a dinner guest. Like, this is like Debbie Downer numero uno right here. This is like the worst person. How was your day? Oh, it was great. How was your day? It was great. Dead people are more fortunate than us. Oh, thank you, Solomon. That's a happy little sentiment there. That's great. He became cynical over time towards God and life. Freddie Mercury was the exact same way. In the track that you just heard, a song called Somebody to Love represents somebody's heart crying out to God saying, God, why am I so alone? Listen to the cynicism here. Freddie Mercury wrote these lyrics. Each morning I get up and die a little. I can barely stand on my feet, take a look at yourself in the mirror and cry, Lord, what are you doing to me? I've spent all my years believing you, but I just can't get no relief, Lord. Somebody, somebody please, can anybody find me somebody to love? Solomon, in Ecclesiastes, his journal of unbridled hedonism would go so far as to say this in verse 3. But better than both is he who has not yet been So better than both those who are living and those who are dead, that, you know, the living have it the worst because they've got to see it. At least the dead don't see it anymore. But you know who's got it best is the person who's never been born. That's how cynical Solomon became. 
Freddie Mercury would say it this way in Bohemian Rhapsody, I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. Did I mention Freddie and Solomon had a lot in common? In desperation, Freddie Mercury once wrote these words, I work hard every day of my life. I work till I ache in my bones, and at the end of the day, I take home my hard-earned pay, listen close, all on my own. Exact same sentiment, Ecclesiastes 4, 7 and 8, Solomon says this, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, no one to comfort him, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. He's still on a rat race, he's still on a hamster wheel, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. To paraphrase, I work hard every day of my life, I work till I ache in my bones. At the end of the day, I take home my hard-earned pay all on my own. It's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. It's habel is the original word. It's, it's, it's vapor. It's breath if you've got no one to share it with. And you can hear the ache in Freddie Mercury's words. You can hear the desperation and loneliness in Solomon's words as well. My work means nothing. My money means nothing. My fame means nothing. It all means nothing. Why? Because I'm so alone. My guess is that there's somebody here, maybe more than one or two, who felt that way at times. You're pursuing fame or you're pursuing power, you're pursuing excellence or accolades or wealth, you're trying to amass things, and it's, and it's like rivers flowing into the sea and the sea is just never full. You're never satisfied, you're never content, no matter how much you try. If Solomon could have whispered in Freddie Mercury's ear, and I love Queen, so I wish Solomon could have whispered in Freddie's ear. I wish Freddie was still around. If Solomon could whisper in your ear today, you know what he would say? There's hope. There's hope. Look, I took it to excess on this side of the spectrum. I experienced everything the world has to offer. I had no end of my money, no end of my power, no end of my talent, no end of my ability, no end of concubines and wives and whatever else, no end of wine. I pursued it to the excess and I never found contentment. And here's what I learned. Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one. Two are better than one. If Solomon could whisper in Freddie Mercury's ear, if he could whisper in your ear, he would just simply say this, contentment is found in people, not things. Contentment's found in people, not things. Stop pursuing things. Start pursuing people, and you'll find contentment there. Solomon goes on to give us four reasons why contentment is found in people, not things. He gives us four reasons why two are better than one. He says two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. We know this, don't we? Like two people working together accomplish more than one person working alone. Solomon lived in an agrarian society, first century Palestine, so he's saying two oxen are better plowing the field than one oxen. Two people working together are better than one person working together. He's saying together we're productive. Together, we're more productive. When we work together, we're more productive. 
my wife and I went to um, Kauai uh, several years ago with some friends, and one of the things we did while we were there is we went on a little kayak trip up the Wailua River. It's like a two-and-a-half-hour kayak trip. And so my wife and I got in this two-person kayak, and I said, uh, babe, do you want to sit in the front or the back? She said, you know, I think I'll sit in the back. And I learned that that was a trick. Um, because we got in the kayak, and we're rowing down the Wailua River, and about five, seven minutes into this kayak, it starts to get really difficult like, it starts to get hard. Like, for the first five, seven minutes, it was okay, but it started to get really hard. So I said, baby, you doing okay back there? She said, yeah, I'm doing great. Okay, good. So I'm rowing, and she's behind me, so I can't see what's going on. So we finally get to the end of this two-and-a-half-hour kayak trip, and I turn around and look behind me, and literally my wife has got her oar in front of her, and she's sitting with her arms like this, and she's got her eyes closed like that. And I said, what in the name of thunder are you doing? And she answered so matter-of-factly, I'm just getting some sun. <laughs> well, like, how long have you been doing this? Well, since about five minutes in. Well, that's when it got hard. I know why it got hard now, because you stopped rowing. And then my wife, this is how she does this to me. Like, she, this, this, is this is her exact words. But you were doing so well. And I'm stupid, so I get tricked by that stuff, you know? And I'm like, thank you very much. That's very sweet of you to say. I am very strong, you know? She walks away tan, and I walk away tired. Two are better than one, because we're more productive when we work together. Look what else Solomon says. He says, two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. Solomon has now transitioned from an agrarian metaphor to a traveling metaphor. See, back then they didn't have highways and pavement and all that stuff. They traveled pretty treacherous paths. And there were all kinds of pitfalls and rocks and things and snares that could, uh, that could cause you to fall on the way. So if you fell and you were by yourself and there was no one to lift you up, Solomon says, woe to you. The NLT, New Lucas Translation says, if you fall and you're on your own, you're in deep yogurt. But if you fall and you have someone to pick you up, then you're in good shape because someone is there with you. Solomon says, together we're supported. Together we're supported. When we work together, we're supported. Keep going. Solomon says, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep, how can one keep warm alone? I want to stop right here. Single people, this is one of them, their metaphors, okay? So... Like Tyndale students especially, don't like tell your significant other after the fact, you know, boo, uh, I just want to like Ecclesiastes 4.11 because it's cold. I mean, it's starting to get cold, so we should lie down together and keep warm. Like girls don't fall for that. The guy that you're dating is stupid, you know, like if he, if he pulls that. This is a metaphor. What Solomon is saying is back then people would travel in caravans, big groups of people. Palestine at that time, first century Palestine, was more lush than it is now, but it got cold at night. I mean, it got even below freezing at night. And they didn't have furnaces, and they didn't have space heaters like my little girl has in her room. And so they, they, they bedded down together. They, they, everybody camped out together in order to keep warm. So Solomon is saying, by way of example, by way of metaphor, together we can endure. Together we can endure any season. 
Keep going, verse 12. And he says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three cord, or threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is still the traveling metaphor. He's still talking about travelers. He's saying when you're traveling by yourself and you are attacked, if you are attacked, it's very difficult to withstand when you're by yourself. See, Jesus even uses this same metaphor when he talks about the Good Samaritan, remember? He says a man is traveling by himself from Jerusalem down to Samaria. And everybody's like, oh, by himself on Jerusalem to Samaria? Like, if he gets attacked, he's not going to make it. Jesus says, that's right. And he got attacked, and he was beaten within an inch of his life. Solomon's saying the same thing. He's saying, if you travel by yourself, you're unprotected. But if you travel together, you're protected. You're protected. So import these concepts, these four concepts. We're productive, we're supported, we can endure, and we're protected. See, because Solomon is not just talking to us about agrarian culture, is he? And he's not just talking to us about traveling together. He's talking about life. He's talking about spirituality. He's talking about this journey that we're on together. And he says, when we're together, when we work together, we accomplish more for the kingdom. We can support one another when we need it. We can endure any season. And we can protect one another from the attack of the enemy. We're simply better together. I did a funeral. I officiated a funeral uh, yesterday for a 51-year-old man who died suddenly of a heart attack. He grew up here at Bayview Glen Church, and he took a long hiatus, and he came back to Bayview Glen Church at the end of last year when his father lost his long battle with cancer. So yesterday, I stood graveside with a woman who was saying goodbye to her son. Like, that's not supposed to happen. Like, it was hard, and, and we were grieving. But for me personally, I can tell you that the overwhelming emotion was, this isn't right. Children aren't supposed to bury their parents. Or parents aren't supposed to bury their children. And here we are sitting graveside, and just a couple of plots over, she buried her husband less than a year ago. We came around her. We supported her. We loved her. She's a part of this family of faith. She will be protected here and safe here. This is what Solomon's talking about. After the service, another uh, ministry partner here, a longtime attender here at Bayview Glen, came up to me. Uh, she lost her son when he was 18 to cancer. And she said, I would have never made it if it wasn't for this church. I would have never made it if it wasn't for the people of God coming around me, supporting me, caring for me, protecting me, picking me up when I fell. And she, speaking of the woman who was burying her son yesterday, will never make it unless we come alongside her. This is what Solomon's talking about. When Amy and I experienced our failed adoption this summer, coming back to this place and knowing people would care for us, love us, pick us up when we had fallen. This is what Solomon's talking about. We're better together. Now, if you know the Bible at all, even if you don't know the Bible, you're probably thinking to yourself, you know what? This isn't new, Luke. Like, I know we need each other. I know we're better together. I know when I fall, I need somebody to pick me up. I know I need true biblical community. I know I need meaningful friendships that are rich. I know I need that. 
But just because we know we need it doesn't mean we experience it all the time, does it? Just because we go, yeah, I know I need that. Well, are you experiencing it? No, not always. So here's my question. Why? Why don't we experience true biblical community? Why don't we experience these rich friendships with people who will pick us up when we fall, who will protect us, who will be bold enough, in, bold enough in our lives to say, you know what, I see something in you, and it doesn't look good. That's dangerous. You need to come out of there back into the fold where you can be protected. Why don't we always experience those friendships? Well, it's because we believe lies. We really do. Solomon addresses them in the preceding verses, as a matter of fact. He addresses four lies that we believe that sabotage true friendship, that sabotage real biblical community. We talked about this in here before, but if you believe the wrong thing, you're going to do the wrong thing. But if you believe the right thing, you have a far greater chance of doing the right thing. If you believe the wrong thing, doing the right thing is just dumb luck. It's like duck hunting through a chimney, like, good luck. But if you believe the right thing, you might be able to do the right thing. So Solomon says, here, I want to help you believe the right thing about community. Stop believing these four lies because these four lies will sabotage your friendships. Here we go. Pick it up in verse 4. He says, then I saw all toil and all skill and work from a man's, say this word with me, envy, of his neighbor. This is also a vanity and striving after the wind. Envy is simply wanting what someone else has. So what Solomon says is there's a friendship sabotaging lie that says, I need what someone else has. That will sabotage your friendships. I need what someone else has. I just got a 2016 model car. Someone down the road from me got the 2021 model. I don't know how cars do that. Do you know that? Like, do you ever pay attention to the car industry and they release models of years that haven't even been yet? That's, that's confusing to me. But I was, like, super happy with my car when I got it, right? It had the Bluetooth connection and, it had the, and then like a neighbor's car has an ejector seat and now I need an ejector seat. I didn't know I needed an ejector seat until he got it. That's envy, right? How many of you have ever upgraded your phone only to find, like, a week later they released a new model of your phone? That ever happened to you? That's called envy. I love you, but that's called envy. Even now, the, the dumbest thing is the, the new iPhone, they removed the headphone jack. Did you know that? Like there's no headphone jack in the new iPhone, and I need it badly. They're actually giving you less stuff. They took away one of the things, a headphone jack, and I still need it. I don't know why. Yes, I do, because I'm envious. I have two really great watches. Uh, one of them my wife got me for our 10-year anniversary and one she got me for Christmas several years ago. I love them so much. But I want a Rolex. <laughs> I want a blue-faced, blue-dial, Submariner. Ian, you know which one I'm talking about. Rolex. Ian and I love watches. That's what I called out, I called out Ian. Ian and I love watches. We talk about watches. And you know what? I don't need those until I see someone else has one because I'm envious. And here's what happens with envy. It sabotages our relationships. It sabotages community. On Monday, um, the last thing I do before we, we go to bed, Amy and I go to bed, is I take my dog to the bathroom. Um, and I took my dog outside at about 10 o'clock on Monday night 
and I said, Misha, go potty. And immediately, my dog started running at full blast off of our patio. She's 80 pounds, why we're on her. And I thought she was running after a deer. And deer can outrun Misha, so she's never going to chase him down. She's never going to find him, right? That's like, you know, she, like she's fine. She runs off into the woods. She eventually comes back. So I thought she was running after a deer. I look up, and there is a little black and white critter in our yard, often referred to as a skunk. And I'm thinking to myself, self, please, please let the skunk outrun my dog. I learned a couple of things. One, skunks are not faster than my dog. Two, skunks don't actually have any internal organs. They're just one big sack of smelly stuff. Because the amount of stuff that that skunk squirted on my dog is just, I mean, all in, and my dog lunged at her with her mouth, so it's all in her mouth and in her nose, all over her chest, everything. I mean, it was horrible. The other thing I learned is it's not liquid that they squirt on people. It's like the consistency of oil. Like, it's really gross. And have you ever smelt a skunk, like on the side of the freeway, one that's got run over? Shoot your hand up if you smelt that before. How many of you, and it's like, man, who cut one in the car? Like, it just, that's what it smells like, right? But, but listen, the actual oil that they spray on people does not smell like that. It smells like nuclear war. Like, it is so unbelievably bad. Like, we're on the bottom floor of the house, and Misha, Misha comes back, and she's got this, like, confused and afraid and shameful look on her face. Like, I don't know what happened, man. I just ran. And then, wow! You know, and, like, she's burning and the whole thing. And I text my wife. I'm like, you have got to come down here right now and clean this up. I'm going to bed. No, no, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I said, you got to come down here because I need help. And she stepped out of our master bedroom on the top floor. Misha's still outside, by the way. Dog's still outside, and she almost vomited. And we're potty training right now, so we don't need any more stains on the carpet that are already there, okay? And she said, it was the worst smell ever. So I come down. She comes down. And we've got to clean Misha up. We've got to put the solution on her. We give her a bath. Usually, she gets to lay in bed with us before we go to bed. Not this time. Usually her crate is just outside our room. I'm picking up her crate, moving it down to the laundry room. You know that this is what we're like when we let envy get the best of us? We see some little critter, some little new thing that we've never seen before, and we just need it. And we don't think. We just run after it. We run after that new gadget, that new technology, that new iPhone. We're serving on Instagram and Facebook and doing things. I need that, I need that, I need that. We go after it, and then we come back to God with a look of fear and shame and surprise, going, you got to clean me up. <laughs> and God's looking at us like I look at my dog. Not, yeah, g- give me a little grace on that one here, right? Look, I, he's looking at you going, I love you. You're mine. Of course I'm going to clean this mess up. Like, I love you even though you stink, but you kind of stink right now because you went after that thing without thinking. I give you a bed to sleep in. I give you food. I give you far more than you could ask or imagine. Why do you think that you need that thing? And now, because you stink, it's going to be really difficult to have community with other people. (laughs) So we need to get this mess cleaned up and start going after things that you think you need so you can have community with other people. So how do we combat envy? How do we come up against envy? How how do we work against envy? Here's the way we do it. We work together. We work together. We don't work alone. We work together. 
Let me, let me tell you how this, how this combats envy. Because this afternoon, when the Blue Jays win, uh-huh, mm-hmm, amen, all right, and they go to the playoffs, will Jose Bautista be envious of Josh Donaldson? No. Why? Because we all did this together. We had a victory together. Same thing in the kingdom of God. We all put our hands in the middle and say, we're going to work together. Envy just crumbles. Let's keep going. Solomon says this. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is a happy little picture, isn't it? Eugene Peterson actually calls this, he says, the fool folds his hands and, and commits slow suicide. That's, why, that's what Eugene Peterson calls this. Now watch what the fool does. The fool looks at the injustice in the world, fool looks at the oppression in the world and does this. I'm not going to get my hands dirty. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to contribute. I'm just going to going to let it eat me alive from the inside, but I'm not going to do anything about it. What's Solomon calling out here? Laziness. He really is. And he's saying that's a lie. If you believe this lie that someone else will do it, someone else will do it, it's going to sabotage relationships. But if you get your hands dirty and you serve and you contribute, it will build true, lasting, biblical community. Let me tell you how it does that. You ever been in our children's ministry? You ever walk back there in our children's ministry? Those volunteers in there have like blood commitment to one another. You know why? Because they have the children. Because they have to fight against my kid, who's a tornado. She's a hurricane. She's a sweet little girl, but she throws stuff and slaps kids. It's totally safe back there, by the way, but like, <laughs> like these people have to band together. It's like the beaches of Normandy back there. Every now and then I'll walk back through the children's ministry and I hear people saying, no, no, no man left behind. You know, they're working together against the children. This is what happens when we contribute together, when we work together, when we engage together. We develop true biblical community. This is why when people come to me, if you've ever come to me and, and said, hey, I'm having a tough time finding community here. I'm having a tough time finding friends here. I'm having a tough time connecting here. My first response is, where are you serving? Where are you serving? Where are you contributing? Because as we work together, we develop biblical community. We've got to sprint through these last two. Solomon says this, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. What's he calling out here? He's calling out discontentment. He says, you've got one handful of something, but you're not content with it. You're not satisfied with it. You want two hands full. And so here's the lie that you believe. If I were blank, I'd be happier. If I were blank. And you fill in that blank with whatever you want. If I were prettier, if I were richer, if I were younger, if I were more powerful, if I were more famous, if I were more successful, then I'd be happier. This is a lie from the pit of hell. You will not be happier with that. Solomon, again, if he could whisper in your ear, said, I had all of this. Anything you could fill that blank in with, I had all of it, and I was never content, and I never experienced joy. How many times have you reached that goal weight or had that dream relationship or got that brand new job or got that brand new watch or brand new car or whatever and it caused your happiness and joy to last forever? Never. 
not once. And it sabotages true biblical community when we go after things, when we're discontent. One more lie, verse 7. Solomon says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, we've already read this, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. It's interesting what Solomon calls out here because he's calling out work. He's calling out work. Now, he's not saying that work is bad. In fact, next week we'll talk about this. Solomon says work is good, but he's saying if you don't prioritize work correctly and you're working to acquire things, but you're not sharing them with anyone, you're not sharing them with your children, you're not sharing them with your friends and family, if all you're doing is acquiring, it's never going to make you happy. It's just toiling. It's just a hamster wheel. It will never bring lasting contentment. So Solomon says, here's the lie that you believe that's going to sabotage those relationships, is that things are more important than people. Things are more important than people. Solomon said, you want to know about things? I've had every single one. On this end of the spectrum, I pursued them in excess, and they never make me ha- made me happy. Why? Because I had all these, you know, kind of secondary relationships with concubines and wives and advisors and people in his court and whatever else, but he had no true friendships, nobody to really share it with. And things to Solomon mattered more than people. And he said, I believed a lie and I never found lasting contentment and joy because I believed a lie. This happens now, too. I mean, it happens in life in general on a very regular basis. Before uh, I did music as a job, I did youth ministry as a high school and and, uh, college age ministries pastor. And I've had a lot of young people come into my office and say, I hate my parents. (laughs) My parents are a pain. My parents are the worst. I don't talk to my dad. My mom's controlling. I hate my parents. And I, I mean, my first question is typically, why? Tell me why. You know what I've never, ever, ever heard when I asked that question, why? Because my dad bought me a junky car instead of a really nice car. I've never heard that. Not once. And I've had thousands of these conversations, literally. You know what I've heard a lot of? Well, my dad bought me an $80,000 car, but he thought that was enough. I just wanted time with him. Or my mom, you know, paid for me to go on vacation, but she never just went to lunch with me. My mom paid for all my clothes and everything else, but I just wanted her to pray with me. We know that. We know that people are more important than things. And we know that when we pursue things, they're not going to make us happy. And we know that when we teach our kids that, it's never going to make them happy. So how do we do this? What can we apply from these four lies that Solomon says, beware of these four lies? How do we work against them other than working together, which we've just talked about? I want to give you two principles, and then we'll close here. Here's principle number one, and if you're jotting down notes, be sure to jot this down. Joy is amplified when it's shared. Joy is amplified when it's shared. Here's the thing. Solomon does not say that having possessions is wrong. 
Solomon does not say that power and fame is wrong. He doesn't say it's wrong. He just says it's incomplete until you share it. We know this. It's like when you go to a really great restaurant or you have a really great steak. What do you want to do? You got to go to this restaurant with me. They've got great steak. When my, when my wife at home makes her protein shakes, she's like, you've got to taste this. This, this one's awesome. You've got to taste this. See, she wants to share her joy with me. She also does the other thing. She's like, taste this. I think the bananas are bad. I'm like, I don't want to taste that. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not your cup bearer. Like, I don't. Uh. It's beside the point. Joy is complete when it's shared. So here's my question to you. Who can you share your joy with this week? What, what brings you joy? Is it golf? Nothing wrong with golf. Share it. Is it food? Is it a great lunch spot? Nothing wrong with that. Share it. Do they have the pumpkin spice lattes out already? They do? Oh, somebody's like just had a religious experience. Yes, Jesus. Yes, with the pumpkin spice. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the pumpkin spice latte. Share it. Because joy is amplified. Joy is complete. Joy is, joy is brought to a new level. When it's shared. Principle number two. Burdens are lighter when we bear them together. Burdens are lighter when we bear them together. We know this. Whose burden can you bear? What coworker needs prayer? What person in the body of Christ needs a handwritten note this week? Which of your neighbors needs, to, needs you to drop by and say hello with a pumpkin spice latte? <laughs> and say, I know you're struggling. I know life's tough right now. I know you're dealing with a death in your family. I know your spouse is sick. I know your kids have gone haywire, and it's tough, and I wish I could fix it, but I can't. All I want you to know is that I'm bearing this burden with you. I'm here to listen, pray, cry with you, and bear up under it with you. Share the burden so that it's lighter. This is what Solomon is saying to us in Ecclesiastes. He's saying, I've experienced everything the world has to offer. Contentment is not found there. Contentment is found in people, not things. So share the joy and bear the burden because joy is amplified when it's shared and burdens are lighter when we bear them together. As we close this morning, a Toronto Mass Choir is going to come back in and do one more song for us and I'm excited about it because it's a song that I grew up singing in uh, the Baptist church that I grew up in called This Little Light of Mine. Do you know this song, This Little Light of Mine? Okay, we sang it in our Baptist church. In our Baptist church, here's what we also uh, did. We kept our hands to our sides because we were Baptist. <laughs> and we do not raise our hands in worship if we're Baptist. Like if someone raised their hand in worship in a Baptist church, it was like the music stopped and it was, young man, do you have a question? <laughs> no, I was just raising my hand in, in worship. But do you have a question for the Lord? Is that what you've got? Put your hands down. That's why anytime you see a Baptist like really moved by the Holy Spirit, like during Amazing Grace or something, this is all they'll do. It's like, what, like, are you carrying a television? What is that? It was like firewood? What is that? Paul exhorts Timothy in his letter to Timothy. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands. 
And so today, my invitation to you, you don't have to do this. If, like, if you don't want to raise your hands, that's fine. It doesn't make you less of a person. You still, God loves you. That's great. It's fine. But, and I, and I mean that, honestly. Like, if you don't, if this is not you, please don't make it you. Don't force it. But my invitation to you this morning is to say, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Our theme this year is for the city. Jeremiah 29, 17. We seek the welfare of the city and pray for it. The city in which you've been called into exile by God. Seek the welfare of that city because in its welfare you will find your welfare. We're for Christ and for the city this year and we're gonna commit together to let our little light shine. And you can even raise your hand and wave it around and nobody's gonna stop and ask if you have a question, okay? As we close, our ushers are gonna come forward one more time and receive a benevolent offering. Uh, once a month, we do this at Bayview Glen Church. It's tradition. It's not like an extra offering on top of what we've already collected. This goes directly to needs in our community. It goes directly to the welfare of the city. So we invite you to give generously out of a grateful and contented heart as an act of worship this morning. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Once that plate is passed you, let's stand together and sing this little light of mine. Ushers, if you guys will come forward and receive an offering, and band, hit it.